0: Baseball Tonight, the podcast.
1: This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, April 26, 2023. And today will be better than yesterday. Working from Bristol at the mothership, Sarah Abbott and Taylor Schwenk. Buster only working from my home in Montana. Well, Tuesday felt like a revenge day. A bunch of teams that have been struggling had big nights. Like the San Francisco Giants, who were 6-13 going into last Saturday's game against the Mets, but they won Saturday and Sunday and Monday. Last night, they trailed the Cardinals 4-3, going to the bottom of the ninth inning. And then this happened.
2: Helsley throws. Swing. There's a high drive to center. Way back there.
1: Still going. Hadios.
2: walk-off home run for Blake Sable. An electrifying
3: moment at Oracle Park and his teammates are jumping on his back as he crosses the plate.
1: Yeah, they went absolutely crazy. What a great call by John Miller and BR. The Giants players going nuts for a rookie hitting a walk-off home run to straightaway center field. How about the Twins? have been consistently by, hammered by the Yankees through the years. This is what happened in the bottom of the sixth inning with a score tied to all. And the pitch. Hit in the air left field well. Hicks back, track, ball, gone! A two-run homer. And the Twins lead 4-2. That was Dan Gladden on the Treasure Island Baseball Network. The Twins win that game 6-2. It was their first series win in more than 20 years. They've won four, six games against the Yankees this year, heading into their last meeting on Wednesday. The best record for Minnesota against New York since going 4-2 and in 2001. I saw an interview with Byron Buxton after the game in which this was presented to him. He paused and goes, I was six years old when that happened. So a big season for the Twins going against the Yankees. Outfielder Brian Reynolds and the Pirates reached an agreement on an eight-year, $106.75 million deal. We'll be talking with Jeff Passan about this contract. Red Sox facing the Orioles after the Orioles beat them on Monday. Jaron Duran came to the plate with the bases loaded in the top of the third.
3: Here's the 3-2. Swing and a drive in the center field. Mullins back at the track. At the wall! Gone! Jaron Duran hits a grand slam to straightaway center field, and the Red Sox lead it seven to nothing. And they
1: went on to win eight to six. That's from WEI 93.7 FM. Taylor, I bet as you were watching that bottom of the ninth inning, you just have that. Magic Oriole feeling right now. I, I, I bet you were thinking, yep, they're going to come back again.
0: I did. I did turn it on. I did not see the uh, the grand slam. Actually, I had, uh, I had punted on the game, and I stood, the text started coming in, so fired it back up. And I did have a, an ounce of belief, but uh, it was not meant to be. I fe- I'm feeling good about our prospects today.
1: Well, shoot, they're playing great, that's for Mm -hmm. sure. Reds have struggled so far this year, and they face the Rangers. who have been one of the surprise teams in baseball. And in the bottom of the eighth inning, the Reds took the lead.
0: Kennedy sets at the belt, the
2: 2-1. And it's a line drive into center field, base hit. Barrero's home. Here comes Fraley, racing to the plate. He
1: scores. Jonathan India puts the Reds on top with a two-run single. 7-6 Reds. That from 700 WLW, the Reds would hold on to win 7-6. The Mariners and the Phillies, and Jared Kelnick went deep again.
0: High drive, right center field, and this ballpark is not going to hold it. Mariners have a 1-0
2: lead. Jared Kelnick, another home run. His seventh of the season.
1: RBI number 14, 1-0 Seattle here in Philly. He is on fire. On fire. That was Dave Sims on the Mariners television
0: network. Taylor, what do you think? We ought to get him on at the podcast at some point? Seems like a good guy to have on the pod. We'll see if we can make it happen. All right. Efforting. Astros. Rays. Of course, the Rays had not lost at home this entire
1: season, and then Tuesday happened. Jeremy Pena got an RBI hit to break a scoreless tie on the top of the fifth.
3: Long set. Now the pitch.
0: And that is hit hard and through the left side for a base hit. Dubon around third and coming home. He will score. Arena picks it up on the warning track as Pena gets to second with an RBI double, 1-0 Astros. That was KBME, 790
1: AM. This was the last out call on 620 WDAE, the flagship radio station for the Tampa Bay Rays. One and one.
3: Pareda swings and grounds one to third. Bregman to his left to second for one. Dubon to first. And after 15 games at home, the Rays have lost for the first time at Tropicana Field. And it's the world champion Astros to do it to them. The final score Houston five and the Rays nothing. Yeah, that's pretty good
1: when you're calling your first home loss at the end of April. Uh, There is some concerning news for the Astros. Jordan Alvarez left the team after experiencing discomfort in his neck. He's getting it checked out. Dusty Baker said they're hopeful that it's not a major deal, but hang on, because say bobby Sleeve been hit by injuries and losing Alvarez would be huge.
0: The Astros will play host the Phillies on Sunday Night Baseball this week. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, I'd like to promote the fact that we will not have to hear Sarah Langs talk about the Rays and their home winning streak. So annoying. Not Sarah, but the the information <laughs> wow. is annoying. Um, in terms <laughs> wow, of- <laughs> there's a bit. Bitter- All right, wait, is this the Orioles part of
1: the segment or part of the podcast? Always.
0: Or what? I'm always derailing it just to circle back to the AL East, the best division in baseball, which I also <laughs> and- resent. <laughs> And your rant on Friday apparently is going to be about the Tampa Bay Rays winning way too much. Uh, Way too much. You know what? It could be about annoying Yankee fans last night melting down because they lost to the dumb twins. Like, get over yourselves, you guys. My God. Yankees fans among the worst. Not Red Sox fans, though. Um, They are the worst. Uh, in terms of podcasts we have to promote here, uh, the College Game Day podcast, Sarah and I recorded that with Reese Davis and Pete Thamel late last night. Uh, we talked about an odd luggage situation. Pete thrives in hotel lobbies, just like I think you do, Buster. Um, they were talking to us from Kansas City uh, right before the NFL draft. They're talking to Anthony Richardson, what the Texans are going to do at number two, their draft c- crushes. And then the uh, the mass exodus happening at Colorado with the transfer portal. Um, Deion Sanders seemingly clearing house there. Um, out in boulder so check out the college game day podcast before the nfl draft uh, is on on espn abc and espn radio
1: the nfl schedule drops this week and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with vivid seats experience every touchdown every tackle and every eye-popping play of your favorite team and to kick it off Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. That's vividseats.com today. Code BASEBALL. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Jeff Passon covers baseball for ESPN. And Jeff, yesterday that included writing a story that's uh, on ESPN.com right now. You can read it there uh, about, uh, you know, essentially a review of the first month of the season. And one of the probably the, the part of it that got you the most attention was all the details about all the injuries that have occurred early this season. What kind of feedback did you get on that?
2: I heard from a lot of people around the sport buster. And I think when you have 236 injured list placements from the beginning of spring training through the first 20 days of the season, it's 45 more than there's been over the last, you know, five or six years at any point in any year. And I know there have been some weird years in there, whether it's the shortened spring training because of the lockout or, uh, the the odd spring training in 21 because of COVID or spring training just getting shut down period in 2020 because of COVID, that there are, you know, the, the, the data there isn't all that great or reflective of what a normal year is like. But a number of people around the sport had reached out to me in recent weeks saying, hey, why are so many guys getting hurt? And what I've learned about injuries by reporting on the arm in particular, you know, over the last decade or so is that there's usually not going to be one definitive clear reason behind it. And I think the people uh, who are really on board with pitch modeling, pitch design, think that it is the pitch clock and that Uh, You know, if guys don't have enough time to recover in between pitches, then fatigue is going to come into play and that fatigue is going to really hinder guys' ability to go out there and do what they're used to doing. And the people who look at the clock uh, like athletic trainers and orthopedists and say, you know what, it's not the clock. Um, Guys adjust, they figure things out. It's actually max effort pitching and pitch design. And uh, guys manipulating their bodies in a way where they're not throwing like they naturally do ergo, they're going to get hurt. Uh, and it, I'm I'm not gonna say it's warring factions necessarily, but there is a distinct divide inside of the baseball universe on why pitchers are getting hurt right now. And for me, the answer is just yes, it is in some cases, pitch design and max effort. And it is, in some cases, fatigue. And it is, in a lot of cases, frankly, and I think this is the one that's most undersold, the fact that the greatest predictor of a future arm injury buster is a past arm injury. And you have a population of pitchers who are coming into the game now, going off of uh, youth baseball that has run unchecked, for multiple decades now, where you have kids who are playing year-round, who are playing in high-stakes travel ball games, uh, and who are getting Tommy John surgery as teenagers. And when you have a population coming into the sport of players who have already been hurt, the inevitability is that they are going to wind up getting hurt again. And in the story I put it, you know, baseball's biggest potential looming crisis is the terminal unreliability of the pitchers who are coming into the sport. If you cannot rely, you know, Buster, what's the greatest ability for a pitcher?
1: Well, in theory, contributing a lot of innings. Availability. That's the answer.
2: And if you have a bunch of guys who are not available, then the quality of the game is going to go down, which is why Major League Baseball, I've been advocating this for a long time, needs to take a much more active role in youth baseball to ensure that those who are coming into the game are doing so with the ability to go out there and do this for a decade plus at a high level without missing a year or two in the middle of that because they keep getting hurt. Do you think that'll ever happen? I think it can happen. I, I think that, um, you yeah, know, I
1: think there and are I a lot of that. It's almost, a, I feel like it's almost a rhetorical question because, for example, uh, you know, through the years we talked about, you know, baseball having more African-Americans and I've, I, I was, hey, you know, hand out money, give a lot of money in scholarship, $19 million a year. You could give a scholarship to every division one team and it makes yeah. all the sense in the world and they've never done it. And I, I think your point's yeah. well taken, and I think you're 100 right. But I also think it comes down to it; it's just not ever going to be a priority for Major League Baseball. What do you think? Yeah, I, I I think the entire
2: youth system in baseball is broken, Buster, and and I think it's broken from so many different angles. I think it's broken from uh, the people who profit off of. Uh, the year roundization of baseball and who are running showcases and tournaments all months of the year and encouraging kids to come in there and uh, do their maximum velocity, you know, and and rank the kids. Uh, I think it's broken by the fact that uh, college coaches before the new NCAA restrictions that were put in place uh, were giving scholarships out to eighth graders. Like I, the, you know, I, I, I see it. I have a high school freshman who plays baseball and is decent. And while he's not getting any scholarships uh, as a freshman, there are plenty of kids in the Kansas City area, like not a noted baseball town uh, who are in the same boat and agents uh, are recruiting eighth graders and ninth graders and pro scouts are out there looking at the same. Buster, it's almost like, in a way, America has turned into Latin America. And I think we can all say that the system that's in place in Latin America right now, uh, the incentives that are there are not great for the development of players. Uh, They're not great for the lives of, of these kids. And I worry that You know, uh American baseball is falling prey to the same thing. And I I asked Rob Manfred about this, I think it was 2014. Like, what are you what are you gonna do about this? And he said, you know, we have plans in place. I asked Tony Clark back then, what are you gonna do about this? Well, we're you know, there there's work to be done. Um I I get that Pandora's box has been opened and maybe you just can't shut it, but Major League Baseball needs to understand that the injuries that are happening right now, I don't think this is an anomaly. I think this is going to be the new norm. And that's a frightening thing because there are a lot of guys who are on the shelf who don't necessarily have to be.
1: Later today, you're going to go out and hang out with the ESPN folk who are going to be doing the NFL draft tomorrow. And in that draft, you probably will not see a running back who gets taken in the first round, maybe not even the second round. Dijon Robinson
2: better go in the first round, Buster. Okay. I I
1: don't know it well enough to say this definitively, but it's my long-winded way of trying to circle back and say, for me, pitchers are becoming like running backs in the NFL. That you speak with teams. And they are completely comfortable with the idea that they're going to bring guys in who are throwing max effort, who worked on their delivery and, and built up their leg strength and throwing really hard. And if they blow out, they're going to be like, okay, go get the next guy, which is where the NFL now has landed with running backs. Yeah. When I was growing up, long before you, uh, the running backs were at the center of everything that was happening. And then over time, you know what, teams are like, eh, we'll, we'll go get somebody else because these guys are probably going to blow out or get hurt, dinged up, concussions, blowing out their knee, you know, because they're Mm -hmm. taking hits. I think that's the direction we're headed with pitchers.
2: I, I, I don't disagree, but doesn't that seem foolhardy to you? I feel like in the NFL, part of the the issue with running backs is that the style of play evolved away from the running game and emphasized the passing game. And maybe because the offense was more dynamic that way, or maybe because it was a little bit safer because the reliability of running backs was just not there beyond age thirty. I feel like pitching still is important in baseball as it ever was. And oh yeah, no and, doubt about and that, that. And that the the You know, if you just look at pitchers like it's going to happen, they're inevitably going to blow, uh, then you're, you know, you're missing out on an opportunity. And I'm not suggesting there is a team out there that understands how to keep pitchers healthy. I don't think there is. Um, But man, it feels like even if you're, you're banging your head against the wall in pursuit of this, even a one or two or 3% difference within one organization and keeping guys healthy can mean the difference between them not winning a world series and them actually winning a world series. And it doesn't take a whole lot because across the industry,
1: nobody knows how to
2: actually do it yet.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't feel like anybody's close. And this is a case where, you know, the the folks who work with pitchers on pitch design, like they're doing their job. You yeah. Know, players who are trying to get better, who are trying to throw harder. They see the direction the game's been going. They're doing their job. Uh, folks within the organization, you know, that. and the Tampa Bay Rays, to me, are like the classic example of what you're laying out here. I think they've they've have obviously done a great job at identifying pitching talent, helping these guys get better. And they're also operating with the understanding that, you know what, we're probably going to have to replace a bunch of them. (laughs) And no team has withstood pitching injuries better than the Rays the last five or 10 years. Yeah, I, I, I
2: think the you know, this is just an extremely practical approach by players. Because, and and Kyle Bodie at Driveline Baseball, I think, lays this out as well as anyone. Um, Kyle doesn't like the fact that he is incentivized to go and teach velocity and teach nastiness with pitches and teach things that may ultimately harm players. He just understands that that's what the market wants. That's what clubs are seeking. And until organizations, Buster, go out there and prioritize command and control, until there's some sort of rule that's put in place to make the slow sinker a real thing again. You know, uh, there are conversations that happen on a weekly basis at Major League Baseball. Uh, You know, Theo Epstein is involved in them And Reed McPhail at the league and others who are trying to figure out how to hack pitching. Like, there's this thing that has spiraled out of control. How do we figure out how to rein it back in? Until they can figure that out, until organizations say, yeah, you know what? I would rather have a guy who throws 90 with exquisite command instead of a guy who throws 95. That just doesn't exist right now, Buster. Like, they are 30 for 30 organizationally in picking the guy who throws 95 because the truth is the harder you throw, generally speaking, the better you are. And that's what they're going for. This is purely about performance and about the indicators that lead to best performance. And the way that the game has evolved, velo is king. And so you've got a bunch of 15 and 16 and 17-year-olds trying to throw as hard as they can because they know that college coaches and professional organizations are always going to go for the guy who lights up the radar gun and hopes to teach control and
1: command later and let the stuff play. And I, I think at the absolute core of that, and I'm curious if you agree with me, it just comes down to in, in this era of modern analytics, if you get a lot of swing and miss, you have more control. And that's oh. what it comes down to, and that is absolutely at the heart of it. Who can generate swing and miss? You know, which who can which throw the we, hardest and who can throw the nastiest breaking? Ball? Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and you know what? It makes sense because yes, every time, hundred <laughs> percent, every time the bat touches the ball, you've got a thirty percent of it chance of it landing, right. Like, it's, it doesn't matter how good your contact is. Well, yeah, it does matter how good your contact is. But point being, if you can just put the bat on the ball, what the numbers tell us is that you got a relatively decent chance compared to the 0% chance you have if you swing and miss. And so that, that's why the whole acceptance of strikeouts by hitters has just never made any sense to me. It's like contact should be such a priority for hitters. Yep. And and while pitchers are being taught to go for the swing and miss, I don't understand why hitters aren't being taught to go more for contact. I, I suppose it's because, again, the numbers say that, the slug that you're getting in taking big hacks in swinging at a launch angle, actually is a more productive thing as well. And, yep. and this is the this is the catch twenty two that basically. Yes, pays now. That's what yeah. pays. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, we saw Jeff McNeil's contract extension. Like, it, you know, it was. I think it was an undermarket deal, but I also think it was reflective of him being a contact oriented guy who's not going to hit you many more than 10 home runs a year. And who's the
1: best contact hitter in baseball right now? There's no Luis doubt about Arise. it. Right. And yep. and what happened with him during the wintertime? He basically was uh, you know, he was he was not coveted to a point that you had Yankees, Dodgers, everyone lining up saying, "Please, we got to have this guy." Yeah. Right? Yeah. So He's
2: really he's he's so much fun to watch though. That's oh, You know yeah. what? Uh, teams if if you want to dislike Luis Ariz or not like him enough uh I can give him extra love because of that. Because anybody with a sub 5% strikeout rate in 2023 is a man after my heart.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's touch on some other things. Uh you write about the Rays being legit. What's in your eye? In your, what in your eyes is so different?
2: They just play such a good brand of baseball in every respect. And you know, like I would, I would love to sit here and say that I thought the Rays were going to be this offensive juggernaut that they are. I think you tweeted yesterday about uh, was it their WRC plus and how right. how it's like they're a team full of Freddie Freeman's. Um, exactly. I mean, they are they are incredible offensively, and and they don't swing and miss nearly as much. You remember, like the the Rays teams of recent years that, uh, you know, we're talking four straight playoff appearances, so this is like a normal thing for them, but uh, the Rays have had a lot of swing and miss. There's not a ton ton of swing and miss right now. Um, So, their offense, they they hit the ball extremely hard, but they pitch extraordinarily well, too. And by the way, they play great defense, and that's with Jose Siri, who might be the best defensive center fielder in baseball right now on the shelf. Um, They you know they run the bases well. They haven't been thrown out on a tag up this year. They go first to third more than anyone. It's just those little things that they do. They they ambush absolutely ambush first pitches. They're hitting 494 when they swing and make contact hmm. on the first pitch. Um, I I just look at the Rays as the perfect combination of not just analytics for which they're known, but process as well. Because what the Rays have done is they've had enough successes individually where if you don't buy into the process that they have, then you're the outlier. You're you're the fool. You're the clown. Because if the Rays tell you something, generally speaking, they handle it pretty well. They have a very good coaching staff upon whom they rely to communicate all of what they know with players. And uh, generally speaking, it's a pretty happy festive clubhouse, not only because they're winning, but because I think the players feel like they're put in the best position to go out and be the best versions of themselves.
1: So I had this really interesting conversation the other day with a longtime baseball person. And I said that the common denominator, I think among the best baseball ops people in the sport are, are that they have some humility. Yeah, And Eric Neander to me is a, maybe the best example that Chris Antonetti would be another one that there's an assumption of what they don't, that there's something out there that they don't know when, and you know this, if you talk to Eric and say, boy, you guys are having a great year. The sound of your ear is knocking on wood because he's, he, he just assumes there's bad news coming around the corner. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it absolutely, he and Kevin Cash, Kevin Cash is the same way that Kyle Snyder, their pitching coach is the same yeah. type of personality and it really works well for them. It does. I, Alex Anthopoulos, I think is the same way. I remember yes. when I was, I remember when I was
2: reporting the arm, um, Alex was running the blue Jays and he had three young, very talented starters, uh, right out of high school it was, Noah Syndergaard, Aaron Sanchez, and Justin Nicolino. And they were limiting them to like one or two innings per start, which didn't make any sense to me because these were all kids who were throwing, you know, a hundred pitches in their high school starts and their arms had been stretched out. So why would you tighten them back up? And I called Alex up and I asked him, why are you doing this? And I will never forget what he said. He said, I don't know. And I thought that was a very interesting admission, a very candid admission for him to make, but he didn't want to pretend like he understood what was going on here. And I think that curiosity, that same curiosity, I don't know what's going on, but I would like to try and figure it out, is what drives the Guardians and the Rays in some of these organizations that despite their their low payrolls and despite their... Uh, you know, lack of lack of, frankly, all of the things that the larger markets have have still figured out a way to be successful. And that is, you know, uh, that is something that I think is worth admiring. I'm never going to admire a a small payroll for the efficiency of it. I think that's kind of obnoxious, honestly, but I will admire the work that people do under the constraints that they have. You know, a GM can't go to an owner and say, give me $200 million and then the owner says, okay. Uh, you know, some GMs are limited and they're doing the best they can with the budget they have and being able to succeed in spite of your owner is is quite often I think uh, a, a sign of excellence in your ability to execute something.
1: I had three quick hitters before you go. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals off to a surprisingly poor start. How do they fix this? Because Jack Flaherty, as you note in your piece, he didn't look that great early on, and they need a frontline guy in that rotation. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I, I hope Jack Flaherty turns things around because back yep. in back in 19, his second half, it, it was, I don't know, it reminded me of Jake Arrieta uh, in his Cy Young season. Like that's how good Flaherty was—just absolutely dominant in that second half. And I'd love to see him get back to that. Um, but really, Buster, it's just about pitching with the Cardinals, is it not? Like I'm, I'm shocked. Matt Libertor, who's carving at a hasn't gotten the call at this point. But it's almost like the Cardinals with Michaelis and with Flaherty and with Mats. Uh, you know, they they have uh, Jordan Montgomery. Like they have. Guys who should be good, they just haven't been. And the reason I picked the Brewers in the Central is because I
1: did not trust the Cardinals pitching. Uh, I asked Sarah Lang yesterday about the Cardinals who went into play yesterday with a, a team ERA of 4.48. And you and I know that the one thing you can count on year after year after year after year with the Cardinals the last 15 years or so is they're going to have a good pitching staff. Yep. And it's remarkable how... Uh, you know, asked her year by year, how many times they played a day with an ERA at 4.48 or higher. I saw that. I saw and that. That was
2: it, unbelievable.
1: Yeah, it was a great job by Sarah digging this out. Uh, The most number of days in any season, 2021, 18 days. This year, they've already had 21 days out of the first yep. 23, in which they had an ERA over that. So we'll see how that progresses. Uh, the Brian Reynolds contract, I wanted to ask you about that. He gets $106.5 million, a three quarter, uh, $106.75 million in an eight-year deal with the Pirates. Surprised a lot of people the numbers weren't higher yesterday.
2: It's a great deal for the Pirates. And I think, you know, Brian Reynolds requested a trade looking for leverage. Pirates held firm, requested an opt-out, uh, looking for for some little sweetener to the deal. Pirates held out, and Pirates ended up doing very well with us. I mean, you know, someone put it to me like Brian Reynolds has been an all-star player who was, I think, eleventh in the MVP voting one year, and has an OPS plus for his career of near one thirty. And Corbin Carroll, with a month in the big leagues, got more guaranteed. And I, I, I think that illustrates Brian Reynolds actually did want to stay in Pittsburgh, and because he could have, if he hit free agency made a lot more money but hey i i love love for pittsburgh that brian reynolds is going to be around for nearly a decade that that city needs a good feeling and the fact that the pirates have gotten off to the start that they have you know they were they were not just in that game but leading that game yesterday against dodgers and i i don't think the pirates are going to be a top the National League Central standings by the end of the season. But I think they've got a little more fight in them than a lot of us, myself included, may have realized. And they've got some very interesting prospects in the minor leagues. I just really hope that Bob Nutting gives them money to go out and spend this winter because yeah. there's, there, is, there is a core in place
1: for something good. And last one before we go, tell us why Rollins Chapman's a name we're going to be talking a lot about. It appears before the trade deadline,
2: uh, because he is throwing very hard again. His slider has a ton of depth, and he plays for the Kansas City Royals. And I, I want, and I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if there's not a preemptive market jump here. Um, if you're the Royals. The last thing you want to do is hold on to him until late July, trying to leverage as much as you can. Um, If there's a team right now that wants a role to Chapman, they should pay for him and get him for five months. Like I, I just don't get why a contending team wouldn't pay a slight premium when you're going to get a guy potentially for two and a half X the time that you would if you wait until the deadline.
1: And you know who that is, right? There's a clear to me a clear team a front runner if that actually were to take place. I mean, everyone needs a reliever, but Dodgers? Mets, Mets yeah. Yeah. I mean,
2: you know I, I I don't know. I I look at the Dodgers right now. Dodgers need a lot of relief help too, but you're right, the Mets the Mets do make a lot of sense and by the way, like he's really cheap too. Um that that's the that's the part about this that is going to make everybody who's looking for him even happier. Like it's 3.75 million rest of the season at this point, 3 million bucks. I mean, I know for the Mets, it would probably be 2X that, but uh, <laughs> everyone else, the, like the, the numbers are great. And you're going to get a guy who looks so different than he did last year. The only, the only question at this point, like, are you worried a role to Shaman's going to quit on you? Like you did the Yankees last year.
1: Right. And I think uh, there might be some folks who would say, well, why would he go back to New York where he had problems? It wasn't about that. It was about Aroldis Chapman dealing with his own struggles. That's how I, I felt watching that and quitting on the Yankees, as you say. Uh, but I, I suspect given where the Mets are and given his salary, Aroldis' uh, salary this year, the Mets would take a chance with that, especially because okay. at some point they're going to need more weapons beyond David Robertson and Adam Modavino. All right, Jeff, thanks for doing this. Uh, I apologize for taking up a lot of your time.
2: Listen, I can can talk baseball, as you know, all the time, but when it comes to injuries, this is like a, in, in youth baseball especially, these are near and dear things to my heart. And I think it's important to have more of these conversations so people in the game actually start talking about it and taking it more seriously.
1: We're driven by the search for better. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs, more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash buster terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need indeed. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NexGard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxydectin, and pyrantel chewable tablets. NexGard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Todd Ratum! is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist who's working seen at ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, com. Todd, how you doing this week? Buster, I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing okay. We're definitely doing better than athletics fans. Uh, I, I'm kind of heartbroken for uh, fans of this franchise out in Oakland who've gone out. And, and when you talk to players about, okay, what's the craziest ballpark, visiting ballpark, the hardest visiting ballpark to play, it's amazing how many of them will say, oh, Oakland, and you and I know it's not because there are 50,000 people in there every game. It's because of the passion of the fans, <laughs> the pointed uh, com- you know, comments that they get from, uh, from the fans, from the stands, and I've been thinking about them you know, all in the last week since we got this news about
3: Las Vegas. How about you? Yeah, same here, Buster. There's a group out there that uh, I've seen on social and I've communicated with, and they basically, they're called Baseball's Last Dive Bar. And that's pretty much what the Oakland Coliseum is. Um, All that seeping sewage, the possums and all that. But those fans got a raw deal. Um, And they've been getting a raw deal for a long time. Let's face it. Um, On the one hand, I'm glad that the saga is seemingly over because it will allow baseball to move on. We've got to wait for the Rays, of course. But soon, I imagine we're going to talk expansion um, with a greater sense of urgency. But so much history, history. Buster, of course, in Oakland, those three back to back to back World Series titles in the seventies. Great teams of uh, the late eighties, early nineties. Um, the Moneyball teams. It's a shame that it went down this route. Um, and to your point, yeah, I mean, what a, what a what an incredible place to see a game. And I'm very lucky. I had put up on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the fact that I got there before Mount Davis was put up when the Raiders came back a very different ballpark back in the nineties.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm curious about your perspective. Cause you follow the history and you, you follow the machinations of major league baseball at this point, the safe bets are Nashville's is a fait accompli. They'll get one of the expansion franchises. I think salt Lake will get the other uh, franchise. And then we're going to see the Tampa Bay ballpark situation resolved. I don't know if it's going to be a park in Tampa, but that'll stay there. And then we have Las Vegas. Does that all make sense to you?
3: It does. There's been a lot of discussion about Montreal uh, over the years, but they've got to get that ballpark built and buster when Salt Lake kind of entered the picture a couple of weeks ago with a very serious pronouncement that they were uh, basically all in, um, the big piece of that news to me was the fact that they have the ability to fund a ballpark. That is the big, big deal. That's not the case in Montreal. Nashville, probably going to get the job done. Um, yeah, so all of a sudden, the pieces are falling into place. They're seemingly falling into place. And Buster, can you imagine... How many bachelor parties are going to take place that will revolve around an A's uh, A's (laughs) home stand in Vegas? I mean, I would have done that back in my 20s. I mean, come on.
1: Yeah, the summer game. uh, That's for sure. So, Todd, this week's uh, choice of Forgotten Field is appropriate given the topic of the athletics franchise. Absolutely. So,
3: Buster, this ballpark was home to two current major league clubs, the Athletics and the Royals. Jackie Robinson made his pro debut here, and Kansas City legend Buck O'Neill starred and managed on its diamond. Phil Rizzuto, Mickey Mantle, and Whitey Ford played minor league baseball there before they headed north to Yankee Stadium, and the historic 1924 Negro Leagues World Series took place there. Former President Harry Truman threw out the ceremonial first pitch for the first American League game in 1955, and Ted Williams managed his final MLB game, During the ballpark's final game, 17 years later, Kansas City's Municipal Stadium, located at 22nd in Brooklyn, three quarters of a mile from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, was built on what had been an ash heap and a frog pond in 1923. It was almost completely rebuilt in just 90 days when the Philadelphia Athletics moved to KC in 1955. More history. On June 12, 1939, the day that the Baseball Hall of Fame opened in Cooperstown, Lou Gehrig suited up in Yankee pinstripes one final time, a month and a half after playing in his final major league game. In an exhibition game against the minor league Kansas City Blues at what was then called Rupert Field, he played first base for three innings going 0-1 and cleanly fielding all four chances that came his way. He traveled directly from there to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota after the game. It was there that he was diagnosed with ALS. Two NFL teams called Municipal Stadium home, including the current Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs, who hosted the stadium's only playoff game on Christmas Day, 1971, the longest game in NFL history, a double overtime loss to the Miami Dolphins. The Beatles played there on September 17, 1964, and 59-year-old Satchel Page pitched three scoreless innings against the Boston Red Sox there almost a year later. Kansas City had long been an elite baseball town, and its ballpark reflected that status. When it was built, Kansas City was considered to be the country's best minor league baseball market, and new Mulebach Field was in a class of its own, surpassing a handful of major league parks in both its seating capacity and comfort. The ballpark changed names several times before the athletics arrived in 1955. At that time, the stadium was expanded from 17,000 to 31,000 seats, and a new four-story scoreboard was added in right center field, dismantled and transported from Boston where it had previously lived at Braves Field before the Braves moved to Milwaukee two years prior. The A's floundered throughout their tenure in Kansas City, but the arrival of Charlie Finley at least made things entertaining. He purchased a controlling interest in the club prior to the 1961 season and introduced the team's now signature green and gold uniforms two years later, along with a host of promotions and stunts that included a mule mascot and a zoo with goats and sheep. He built what he called the KC Pennant Porch in right Field, the dimensions of which matched those at Yankee Stadium, just 296 feet from home plate. American League officials forced him to move the fences back, so he ordered the fence to be rebuilt to the prescribed minimum of 325 feet, after which it was renamed the one-half pennant porch. Finley moved the A's to Oakland in 1968, and the ballpark waited a year before the expansion royals arrived. They played their first four seasons at Municipal Stadium before moving into what's now called Kaufman Stadium in 1973. Municipal Stadium was demolished in 1976. On May 6th, 2022, community leaders, including our friend Bob Kendrick, gathered to dedicate Monarch Plaza at what was once the ballpark's entrance. Go there, remember Buck O'Neill, Satchel Paige, the Expansion Royals, the KCAs, and all of it, and imagine Municipal Stadium, which is this week's Forgotten Field.
1: All right, I got a couple follow-ups for you. One, I didn't know until I read your entry uh, that you sent ahead, that the Beatles had played there. And it reminded me that last week we had Taylor and Hembo talking down the accomplishments of the Beatles.
3: Like they were some minor figures in history. Todd, I want your perspective on this. Buster, I have a very controversial perspective on the Beatles for Beatles lovers, but I'm just going to put it out here. Uh, The Beatles are incredibly consequential. They changed the world, but I'm a little tired of them. I've been hearing them since I was born. My parents had You know all these Beatles albums in the house, which was awesome. But after all of these years, I've reached the saturation point, so I'm I'm kind of done with the Beatles. But I respect the history, and uh, there's no denying the fact that they changed the world. (laughs) Okay, is that a reasonable take, or am I? I'm not going to give Taylor an opportunity to follow up on that. very
0: reasonable. Say, anybody
1: downplaying anything? No, Taylor. No, we're not going to let you do it this week. Uh, More importantly, for fans of the Athletics you got to keep the green and gold, right? We talked about that on the podcast last week. you got to keep that when they move to
3: Vegas in some form or fashion, yes? Lean hard into the green and gold. They own it. You look at the palette of Major League Baseball. There is no other team, Buster, that has green as their dominant color. I mean, they own this. They have owned it. They have owned it for 60-some-odd years, whatever it is, 60 years now. Um, Go for it and maybe call it, you know, it looks like a blackjack, felt or something <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to this week's quiz well you you threw me a fat fastball right down the middle at about 80 miles an hour so here's this week's question when a's owner charlie finley designated his team's green and gold colors what did he officially call the club's golden hue was it a wow. california gold b home run gold c grand slam gold or d fort knox gold Charlie Finley, officially called the A's gold, A, California gold, home run gold, Grand Slam gold, or Fort Knox gold.
1: Boy, oh boy. Um, you know, I, since I won last week, and I'll stand on that pedal stool for the moment, I'm going to go, and I don't know the answer, but I'm going to make an educated guess. I'm not going to tell you why, because I don't want to give Sarah and Taylor an advantage. I'm going to go with D, Fort Knox gold. Sarah?
3: I'm either going to go Grand Slam gold because it's an alliteration or California gold because of history. So I think I'm oh, California gold. Taylor.
0: I also want to go Fort Knox gold because I feel like Fort Knox gold was a thing that people were like obsessed with back in the day. It's not like a current day reference. So I will also go Fort Knox gold.
1: All right. And, and here's my logic now that those guys have locked in their answers is that Charlie Finley, as you know, is from the Midwest. And maybe that was more of a thing for him. What do you got,
3: Todd? Hey, and Buster, it is Fort Knox Gold.
1: Yes. Wow.
3: yeah, Fort Knox Gold, and uh, this is before they moved to California, Sarah. So, which um, kind of, you know, but California Gold, the gold rush, stuff, yeah, all that you stuff. Know, that's a good, you know, it, answer. it makes sense. It does make sense potentially. Uh, and and you'll also be happy to know that uh, it, it was you know just plain old Kelly Green. At one time, it was Seafoam Green. But the white collar, these clean white uniforms that they occasionally wore, uh, were uh, at various times wedding gown white and polar bear white. The guy had a, a knack for promotional stuff, let's face it. Well, there's
1: no doubt about that. He was the guy who suggested changing color of the baseball, as you know, Todd, uh, you know, for to have it uh, to stand out more. All right. Thanks for doing this. And we'll talk to you next
0: week. All right, guys. Thanks. Bleacher tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Wednesday. Brad Barber at BRAD Barber writes in Is Justin Steele an ace? Yes, he is.
1: Look, he's got a a high. He actually reminds me of Framber Valdez of the Astros. This is someone with a high rate of ground balls, and he strikes out some hitters as well. He currently leads the National League with a 119 ERA. Just two homers allowed in 30 innings. And look, I know it's a small sample size, but I also remember David Ross, the first time I ever talked to him about Justin Steele, how he was fired up about the great stuff that he brings to the table. And by the way, it's the perfect team for him, you know, having Dansby Dansby Swanson, Nico Horner behind him on defense. The Cubs currently tied for six out of 30 teams in defensive
0: run saves. They are excellent with the glove. Love that. Andrew DeSalvo writes in, most teams are around uh, 25 games into the season. Do GMs, scouts, and analysts still consider this too early to say players have definitively improved or declined? Or is this enough of a sample size? I'm looking at you, Jared Kalnick. Yeah,
1: I. it really depends on the player, right? I mean, if they see trends in a particular player, like you say Kikuchi. Uh, early in spring training, you were hearing that he looked really good, that he had changed the way he was using his fastball. You know, the Blue Jays folks talked about how he, he worked like crazy during the course of the winter time, uh, stayed in the United States rather than travel back to Japan because he just wanted to go to work. And so he's off to a good start. And I think there are a lot of people who probably aren't surprised. Jared Kelnick, uh, because of his struggles in recent years, prompted him to
0: make adjustments. He's definitely turned it around. Earlier in the podcast, I lampooned Yankees fans for their panic here. But uh, Andrew Campbell at Real Camp Drew, he makes a compelling case here. He says, Buster, as of Tuesday morning, the $279 million Yankees as a team have less base hits than the Oakland Athletics, the Washington Nationals, and the Cincinnati Reds. Those three teams all have payrolls under $100 million and are at least seven games under 500 panic time in Yankee land.
1: It's way too early to panic, but... There are concerns, and the loss of Giancarlo Stanton is a big, big deal, uh, and they really need Harrison Bader as he comes back from the injured list to have an impact right away. Like, they can't wait around, especially because, I think you know, with Aaron Hicks not really providing anything, uh, <laughs> you need – they're kind of in a weird place. They've got guys like Volpe who are very promising, but he's a rookie, so you don't know what to count on. They need veterans to step up, and, and Bader –
0: Vader's return, it feels important for the reasons you you just laid out, Drew. I really love the Yankees' commitment to Aaron Hicks. That's just incredible to me. Uh, P.K. Steinberg (laughs) writes and what's the difference between the A's and Royals at this point? Same record as of right now. Is it that the Royals appear to be trying, but just stink anyway?
1: Yeah, I think it matters that they appear to be trying. (laughs) Like, as opposed to the A's. Uh, I I do think it matters. Look, I... Not going to criticize a team if they make a bunch of moves and they spend a bunch of money trying to get better, because at least they're trying to win. What the A's are doing is, as I've said many a time, you wish the other owners would hold, uh, you know, their, their fellow owners who uh, design tanking teams to step it up
0: and to put pressure on them. It's embarrassing how bad the A's are. Last one for today, Ryan Silsby at Silsby Ryan writes, and speaking of Mookie Betts and the Dodgers shortstop problems, what is the history of outfielders turning into shortstops long-term? Seems like Trey Turner made the switch recently. How rare would it be for Mookie to switch to shortstop for good? Not for a player of that stature. It's unprecedented. All righty. That does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets. While you're watching games, we will be back on Friday. That's it
1: for today. My thanks to Jeff, Todd, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and remember hate inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NextGuard Plus, a Foxoloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal Chewable Tablets. Next Plus Chews provides one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.